listeners, and welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Zoe Ingram. I'm Luisa Bengtsson, and we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today, our guest is Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know who he is, who haven't heard the name, he's a molecular gerontologist on the quest to undo aging, which is actually the title of his conference, which is taking place in Berlin from tomorrow on. It's called Undoing Aging. And he's also giving a scientific talk here at the MDC today. And that's why we have the opportunity to actually talk to him before. So we're doing that. In a and we're going to be looking from the perspective, or I guess we're curious about him as a citizen scientist. Yeah, because he's, uh, he's outside of the scientific system in a way. He's not dependent on, uh, well, impact factors, uh, grants, um, any of this typical nitty-gritty of doing science in a scientific system as we have it. Um, he's outside of it, and he's been that for a long time, and he basically came to this position by persistence and and trying to solve a problem, a problem that he really sees as a big problem of humanity, which is aging. So uh, we're not really going to talk to him about his topic, per se, aging, um, and why he wants to stop it, but really on the his, his take on um, open science and if there are any parallels um, between him and citizen science movement and so on. So I guess without further ado, uh, let's talk to Aubrey. You are considered being a controversial person. Not um, so much as I used to be. So if you go back and you look at the kinds of things that people said about my work a decade ago or more, then absolutely, hardly anybody understood anything about really what was going on. And they thought that I was saying very unscientific stuff. But these days, not at all. These days, the damage repair concept, the way of going about addressing aging that I've been pioneering all this time, is totally mainstream. Mm -hmm. And how did that come about? Really, it came about because of, well, it's correct, <laughs> it helps, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also just because it, 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 it was a case of people just understanding what I was saying. Mm -hmm. The thing about damage repair is there are lots of different types of damage that the body does to itself throughout life, which means that in order to do damage repair comprehensively, you have to bring together a lot of different interventions. And most of the interventions that I identified back in 2000 or so um, as having good potential to achieve this had been taken to the point where they already were, which was, of course, always an early stage, in other areas for other reasons. For example, I brought in some, areas, some, some technologies that had previously only been pursued within environmental decontamination, you know, not even medical, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, that meant that people who studied the biology of aging didn't know anything about these things. And it took years for them to get up to speed. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, it, it's kind of what you would expect, really. It's kind of normal that something that's this much of a paradigm shift is going to take quite a bit of time to be understood well enough to be seen to be actually valid. Mm -hmm. um, 
but what 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 were the the origins of your sort of being controversial? Um, is this the uh, when you said basically the the first human um, who's gonna live beyond hundred twenty or something is already born? Or what what was the controversial? Uh, so part at the beginning there were two controversial things. First of all, as I just mentioned, people didn't understand really how one could even conceive of doing sufficiently comprehensive damage repair on the body to actually deliver properly um, you know, true rejuvenation. But then the second thing, which is still controversial in a way. <coughs> so the second thing is what I've often called longevity escape velocity. <laughs> And what that's all about is If you're rejuvenating people, if you're actually taking people who are already getting you know, to middle age or older and you're making them biologically younger again, then of course you can do it more than once. You can do it over and over again and you can do it more and more effectively because you've got more and more time you know, to, 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 for, the, for the research to progress. So this was completely obvious to me from the beginning um, that if we could get this rejuvenation thing to give us even... 20 or 30 years of additional life, then game over. You know, it's going to be indefinite because we're going to be kicking the can down the road faster than time is passing. No question. Now, I still think, in fact, I'm still absolutely certain that that's true, that the, um, what some people have called the methuselarity, <laughs> by analogy with the singularity, yeah. is going to be a single event. You know, there will be, I don't know when it's going to happen, I th as I say, I think we've got at least a 50-50 chance of getting there in the next 20 years. But when it happens, when we get to be able to extend healthy lives via rejuvenation technologies by a couple of decades, 20 or 30 years, <clears throat> then we will totally never need to worry about getting sick because of how old we are ever again. Well, people will still smoke and eat nope. meat, <laughs> red meat. And well, that's honestly also not a problem. Okay. You know, things like smoking and, um, you know, even getting significantly overweight, these are things that accelerate the accumulation of damage in the body, um, but not by a ridiculous, it's not like being a Chernobyl, right? It's, you know, it's, it's like, you know, they, they accelerate things, but the types of damage that accumulate are the same types of damage. So that means that the same therapies are going to work to repair that damage. This whole idea of kicking the can down the road is still ridiculously controversial. But if you look at it, it's completely obvious. You know, it's scandalous that anyone should have a problem with this. And so it's easy to see why people say they have a problem with it. It's political. You know, people know that the whole concept of living a very long time indeed is very disruptive. And people are not ready for that concept, or at least scientists think that people are not ready for that concept. And in particular, the people who write checks to scientists think that the public are not ready for that concept. Yes, you are in the position um, basically to be the perfect citizen scientist in a way, um, because... Um, Yeah, you, you have the means, you have the you have the the power. Uh, you don't have to uh, don't rely on impact factor to advance your career. Uh, you basically 
outside of the scientific system in a way. Is that how you see yourself or? Yeah, at least outside of the dependence on the scientific system. I yeah. believe that it's an absolute complete tragedy that science has gravitated over the past century to a system of peer review. Certainly peer review of manuscripts makes sense. You know, you definitely want to see the good stuff published. But peer review of grant applications is a catastrophe because it relies on communicating to other people why a genuinely new idea is a good idea. And kind of by definition, no one's going to understand your idea as well as you do. So, you know, it's a disaster. And it's a, a, it's, it's a particularly massive disaster in a field like aging because, number one, aging is such a multifactorial phenomenon that any real, well, that good work in this area is likely to be very cross-disciplinary, which means, of course, it's, um, you know, you're never going to have the right study section, right? It just doesn't happen. The other thing is, of course, it's early stage, translational stuff. It doesn't kind of fit the right model for most peer review. But the most important thing is that peer review is massively biased against high-risk work. It, you know, you've got to be doing the stuff that gets you publications quickly in order to get your next grant application funded. Mm. And that means you go for the low-hanging fruit, you go for the things that don't necessarily scale. And the thing is, everybody knows this. You know, everybody actually knows this. But it's the classic prisoner's dilemma where, you know, um, everyone, every individual constituency is in their interest not to rock the boat too much. Well, I think, I mean, actually, I, I agree to disagree in a way, uh, because people are rocking the boats, uh, but there are people who don't have the power to actually rock the boats. Uh, I mean, I, talking about, for example, PhD students, postdoc. There's also the question of quality, though, with peer review. That was what we were talking about before. Like, what happens if there is no peer review? Well, you see, I don't think that quality should be thrown out of the window. Of course not. But I don't think it should be done on the basis of what you're planning to do next. A perfectly good system could be developed that revolves around what you've done so far. Of course, it has to be seen in some way. When a new scientist comes along and they're just out of their postdoc and they're just starting their, and they're writing their first grant application, then there's got to be some system of saying, okay, by default, you get some kind of relatively small but fixed amount of money you know, based on like, you know, the impact factor of the papers that you published during your PhD or whatever, you know, something like that. But thereafter, you know, as time goes on, Professors should not need to justify what they're going to do next on the basis of being able to convince somebody, you know, somebody who's busy and hasn't really got time to think about it anyway. What they should do instead is get money purely based on the impact of the work they've done previously. Well, that's Furthermore, yeah. I think it should be work that they've done at least three or four years previously. In other words, there ought to be much more impact and much more weight given to the long-term impact of somebody's work. At the moment, I mean, impact factors. I, I, my, my job is I edit a journal. And one of the craziest things that was done quite some time ago now was they changed the impact factor system so that you only look at um, citations of papers in the past two years. I mean, Christ almighty, that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. 
Uh, it's a whole new, uh, it's a whole new topic of a whole new Pandora's box of uh, topics. The the impact factor and the uh, yeah judgment of work according to impact factors. But actually, I just wanted to throw in, but. Uh, Actually, one of the critiques of open science, um, or actually one of the critiques not on open science, but of uh, science, specifically medicine, that it is not um, based on actually merit, um, usually. It's it's built on, um, like it's not evidence-based, it's eminence-based, which actually uh, means that people who have a certain standing always get funding, mm -hmm. right? So if you compete with someone who has a long-standing career and has done that stuff, then it doesn't matter how good idea you, how, how good um, idea you have, um, how well-written your grant applications, you will always lose mm -hmm. because the CV is being judged as well. So this is actually something that European Union does. I, I have a lot of sympathy with that problem. Mm -hmm. I, do, I do agree with that that is potentially a big problem. And, you know, in some countries, it's worse than others. In fact, Germany has quite a bad reputation for that, and so does Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but, of course, that can be addressed without necessarily changing the whole system. You know, it's a bit like taxation. You know, you can have a, um, an egalitarian progressive taxation system in which there's a steep gradient in terms of the wealthiest pay the most money and so on, or you can have a less egalitarian well, one, Sweden, right? Right. Or you can have a less egalitarian one. Um, and um, I think you can kind of do the same thing. You can say totally, you know, the, the, you, know, the, the, the you, can, you, can, you can kind of um, weigh, weigh the system against seniority to an extent that balances that. And it's just a matter of judgment how much you do that. Well, I think that the most successful systems right now uh, that have been tried are basically the lottery. Um, mm -hmm. So um, if you look at the long term, there are some studies showing that if you look at the long term impact of particular piece of work, so you apply for some grant and, uh, and let's say 50 people apply, apply uh, 25 of those get uh, grant based on their uh, merits or the merits of the proposal and the rest is just lottery. Um, uh, long term, the same result. The, it's like Seems entirely likely to me. I mean, certainly that's actually the word that often people use, people grant administrators use, because they know that when the pay line gets down below 10%, you know, the top 10% of grants are indistinguishable in quality from the next 10%. Indistinguishable. They so also did it already is a lottery. Yeah. They also did something in Canada where they first took the resumes of everybody and everything was open, and this was in comparison between women. And then they took the resumes and they took the gender and the person and everything away and just did it based on the scientific results. And all the gender bias was in that way completely erased. Was that yeah. fair? So, I mean... Yeah, the peer review definitely has all kinds of different problems. But at the same time right now, um, definitely in Germany, but also Europe-wide at least, there is a huge push towards citizen science initiatives. Mm -hmm. So involving more citizens in science in different ways, right? Um, the thinking being, uh, there is this crowd intelligence out there, or there is uh, basically the expertise we need to solve future problems. It's not necessarily only in the academic institutions. The, um, if you open up academic institutions to the influences from outside, well, how do you guarantee the quality again? Because can actually a citizen scientist deliver the same quality of work as a uh, you know, trained scientist? And really, I mean, you need... Well, so, 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 I mean, that, that, there's another aspect of that in relation to me. You know, I've never tried to do science hmm. uh, in the sense of actually, you know, running gels or whatever. Hmm. I hire people to do that. Um, what I've been from the beginning is a theoretician. 
someone who comes up with new concepts. The point is I built, I built a community around myself that had the experimental biology credentials and expertise so that I never really put myself in the position you're describing of um, trying to kind of you know, do things without being trained. Okay. Um, Can I just ask a question for understanding? So you have, you have a theory and then you hire scientists and the scientists, either you take data that's been produced somewhere else or the scientists that you've hired then test this theory to see if it's correct. Basically, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And of course, I've gone beyond that over the, over the years because, um, well, starting nearly 20 years ago now, in fact, it wasn't so much theory in the sense of a scientific hypothesis that was either true or false, it was more technology, in other words, translational stuff, trying to say, okay, given what we already do know, um, how can we actually develop technologies that will keep people healthy in old age? And um, so then, I, you know, that was where I really was able to bring in that other side of my expertise, the, the mindset of a technologist more than a basic scientist. But of course, this is also, so this applying of um, technology before knowing the full spectrum of what is there to know about the system at hand, of course, is something that's um, pseudoscience is also doing, right? I mean, there are a lot of, for example, talking about stem cell technologies, there are a lot of uh, stem cell clinics, I'm doing citation marks, clinics, <laughs> um, that sell uh, stem cell therapy, but deal with hope, right? So just speculate people's hope and sell uh, totally bogus and non-effective, much dangerous um, so-called treatments to people. Um, but of course they see themselves when, when, you, when you go to websites, they like the applying technology, right? To help people because they say, well, we know enough, so we can go ahead. How do you see the... Oh, it's a very fine line. You're completely right. Forget about stem cells. Even way back um, you know, 20 years ago, there was already a big thing called the anti-aging industry, which was, you know, very lucrative and was based, as it still is, on products that fundamentally don't work. So, absolutely, it's like selling hope. Mm -hmm. um, now... Today, in the stem cell world, we have an interesting situation, a wide spectrum of what's going on. We certainly have the, some, some of exactly that, you know, people being sold things that haven't been tested or um, are not being you know, done properly or not being followed through appropriately. Um, however, there is perhaps too much of a backlash against that. I certainly feel that there's a debate that needs to be had, and it's being had around the world, with regard to exactly how thoroughly something needs to be proven to be safe and effective before it should, before people should be allowed to buy it. Mm -hmm. You because know, at the end of the day, everybody's got their own personal choice to make about risk-benefit ratio. And, of course, we already have, in a way, a, um, an answer to that in the sense that different... Um, Countries have different legislative situations, different regulatory regimes. But that's only really a solution for people who've got lots of money and able to engage in medical tourism. So I believe that, um, you know, th there's a strong case for, for, for a combination of, on the one hand, greater oversight, but also greater liberal, liberalization and greater choice for the patient. Well, that's the whole problem of the consent choice then, you would say, because uh, if people are sold, people, desperate people are sold 
hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not necessarily looking into, like, is it really... Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not saying that this is in any way an easy question to answer. It's mm-hmm. a really fraught issue morally, economically, you know, in many, many different ways. I'm certainly not saying I have any easy solution. Okay. And I have one more question about the Sense Foundation. So we were thinking about in the beginning that it's a nonprofit organization. And I was really trying to understand, like, and where can you, in which position can you put it in, in context of mainstream or established academic, the academic system? So we publish academic papers, you know, in regular journals. So, um, you know, in that sense, we are um, measured in the standard way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we exist in order to do stuff that we perceive is not capable of being done elsewhere. Specifically, the most challenging areas of damage repair and aging are areas where a lot of people know that if they could do, if, if such and such a thing could be done, it would be a real breakthrough. But everyone's given up on it because they couldn't get a publication every 10 minutes the way you need to in order to get funded. And so, I mean, a great example, the talk I'm going to be giving this afternoon here at the Max Delbrook Centre is on a project to make backup copies of the mitochondrial DNA in the nucleus. That's a project that was first conceived back in the 1980s. And after some initial isolated promising results, people totally ran into the sand, they couldn't get anywhere, everybody gave up, decided it was far too hard, and... The only reason that we're not in that position anymore is because Sense Foundation, more than 10 years ago, started working on it. It took us 10 years to get our first publication. You can't do that in mainstream academia. But now we are totally, you know, undisputed world leaders in this. We are rocking and rolling and getting this to actually work. Um, And everybody knows that this is now feasible it would have been completely lost. That's just one example of what we've been able to do because we're an independent institute. How, how transparent are you? How open, like, can, can, do you have a, a day where you open the doors and people can come and see what you're doing? Totally. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't do an open day per se, but absolutely, yeah. We, our, our address is on our website. Yeah, you can come and visit us. Um, you know, we, and obviously we have an annual report. We're a regular public charity, so we you know, follow all the usual rules. Uh, yeah, everyone's very, and, and we, of course our website has huge amounts of information written for every kind of audience, from novices all the way up to professionals, um, about what we're doing. Would you consider um, Would you consider a citizen science project, an actual research project involving citizens? Sure. If somebody came to us and they were not, at, we have a grant application procedure. Um, I mean, most of our money goes to things that we initiate, whether it's done internally or in uh, universities. But some of it goes to projects where people just write to us and say, this is what we'd like to do, this is how much it's going to cost. And um, we don't prioritise on the basis of credentials, on the basis of, you know, norms. Yeah, what is your grant award procedure, by the way? How do you grant Well, I am the Chief Science Officer of the Foundation, and under me there are a bunch of other scientists, uh, the senior ones. We form something which we call the Research Development Committee. And so we meet every so often, and we evaluate the uh, grant applications that have been brought in. We evaluate them 
jointly with the things that we're already funding and um, the things we do in-house, and we basically rank them. We just do the standard thing. We, so we decide you know, how, um, how valuable would this be, you know, how likely is it to work, you know, is it good value for money, you know, the usual things. And, um, uh, yeah, so and we, and we, we just say, here's a check, you know, same as anybody else. Okay, so it's the same peer review kind of process. Yes, but because it's done internally mm -hmm. um, and because the number of grants that we get is much smaller than, of course, you know, National Institute of Health or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's easier to make good decisions, um, to be honest. Uh, plus also, I mean, the fact that we are funded the way we are by philanthropy mm -hmm. means that it is already a given that we don't have the pressures of feasibility, you know, the low-hanging fruit thing. You know. yeah. we, I mean, ultimately, the reason why the peer review system of grants has degenerated so much is, you know, it, 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 it's... It's self-fulfilling. You know, these days, the top scientists will never go on study section because it's so soul-destroying. You know, the only people who will do it are people who need it for their CVs, right? Um, and, of course, that reduces the quality of the peer review further. Mm -hmm. But you just can't afford... Oh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're doing the review, you can't afford to be too clever about it, you've got to make sure that the things that you approve the funding of actually do lead to publications in high-profile journals soon. So that further is, you know, exacerbates this problem. Mm -hmm. But you do evaluate them on the merits also of uh, publications, basically. You do look oh, we definitely need to know that people... We need to be convinced that people are, are going to be competent to do the work. Mm. But there are many ways to convince us of that. Yeah. We don't have to think. We don't, we, don't, we don't just look at some number like, you know, the H index or whatever. Okay, well, what do you look at? I mean, this is really interesting because this is one of the open science uh, holy grails is to basically develop altmetrics, right? A different metric system for evaluation of quality. So, so what factors do you look at? Well, certainly we look at track record overall. Mm -hmm. You know, if a group has got... Um, you know, it's uh, 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 got other publications. We don't necessarily care about the impact factor of those journals. Mm -hmm. What we'll care about is the work that they've done. We'll actually read the papers because we'll take the time because we can because there's not too many applications. <coughs> or, you know, we'll look at, you know, their facilities. We'll see, you know, do they have the, um, the infrastructure at their institution, whatever it might be, to actually do the work. And, of course, um, the importance of that is very much a function of what, kind of work they're asking us for money for in the first place. Some of the work that might, we might be asked for, you know, rather a small amount of money to do something that is only bioinformatics and only requires a laptop, you know. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, it, it's all very, you know, grant-specific. Okay. We, 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 don't, we deliberately do not have any generalizations. Okay. So, I mean, you still like, I'm just being very placative now, but basically, let's see, there is a... Uh, woman who um, left research, uh, I don't know, when she got her kids, mm. mid-20s, or, okay, nowadays, mid-30s, let's say. Um, and then uh, when they, the kids were, like, 18 out of the house, she decides to go back to research. She uh, comes up with, like, really cool 
idea in her eyes, you know, like, but she doesn't have any credentials for the last 20 years, basically. Would that be a person? We would totally have had no problem with that. Some of the people that we've taken on into our research groups have been of that kind, have been those kinds of people, mm -hmm. people who've been out of research a long time. Okay. Is then the, the most motivating factor that they want to live forever? Oh, by no means. I mean, certainly some of the people who want to work for us, it's for that kind of immortalist kind of reason. But most of them not. Mostly uh, on the science side. Uh, of course, you know, most of our people who are not on the science side, like the outreach people, the admin people, they are more the immortalist types, I guess. But, um, but not the science. We're interested in whether you can actually do the job. Actually, we... Um so we have we just had this um, citizen science uh, helmholtz is the organization we belong to a workshop here for the last two days uh, at NDC and uh, we're talking to some people yesterday that we're going to interview you and uh, like so what would you ask Albert right and uh, and one woman um, took a long silence <laughs> and then she's like what do you say how do you I would like to ask him what his relationship to death is I don't think about it much to be honest you know I'm the first things first kind of guy I'm not. I'm not planning to die, but at the same time, I'm actually doing something about that. <laughs> I'm actually trying to fix it. Most people are just kind of resigned, and I'm not the resigning kind of person. Thank you very much. Nothing wrong. Thank you. Very interesting conversation. Yeah. I found it really interesting, this idea of if you have sort of the means and the persistence and the time, well, basically the means in all its aspects, to pursue a certain avenue of research outside of the academic system, then you can do it very successfully. The question of having such a successful foundation being funded from charity, doing a model of research that's definitely outside of the academic mainstream world. Well, I guess there are some rare diseases out there um, that people are researching uh, from on charity money, uh, because it's the only way you get research into rare diseases funded, right? Public money and charity money. Um, I think that's that is and that that is another like one of those outside specters of of uh, research that's going on, but it also is building on the same thing of there's a need because someone's in pain for it, but mm. the longevity or is is somehow it's a I don't know for me it's a strange idea mm. that I find really intriguing. Mm -hmm. We had the artist Emilia Tika um, here in MDC Research Labs. She did the artist residency on the topic of longevity and rejuvenations. And she had the idea of using CRISPR for um, CRISPR-Cas, the new genome editing tool, for rejuvenation purposes. And um, she made basically an art installation sent into this topic. So she spent actually three months in the research labs here and working with scientists um, to create an art piece that's based on speculative design, which is probable. So, of course, it's still a speculative design approach, but scientifically not totally out there, like mm -hmm. sort of tangible. So um, 
I mean, you were there. You, you saw that how people reacted to her art piece. It was quite disturbing for many people and kind of... I was so involved with myself that I actually wasn't able to see the reaction of the other people because I went through and I looked at the whole entire thing and there was just a little minor detail at the end that just made my heart jump up because it was actually really this like question of, okay, if you choose the path to to continue to live and all your partners are living in the outdoor life and the, the pictures of the man who who was choosing to breathe in and inhale the crisper he uh he lived inside and was not able to go outside and everything was very sterile and he ate pills while his wife or girlfriend or lover whoever she was was i don't know maybe she, i think she had a spaghetti or you know and was drinking a glass of wine and and then there was these little urns on the end And that that question of every single time deciding to live to forever and that question that everybody you've ever loved will pass. I think for me, I was I was so occupied with that feeling that I wasn't really necessarily able to see what the other people were experiencing. Um, for our listeners, we have a little video actually from the event uh, where we introduced, where we well had like a little scientific symposium about um, the art piece. And so there is actually a film talk by the artist when she explains her um, art piece and also some reactions from people, um, like impressions from the evening. Um, and we'll post the link in the show notes, of course. Yeah, but longevity. So yeah, basically, so Amelia, uh, she was asking the question, would you live, would you want to live forever? And it seems like people who saw her art piece were kind of, uh, yeah, not really, maybe. Yeah, but the thing is, when we were talking to Aubrey today, I was thinking, what would it be if the possibility was there? Mm -hmm. It's a total different question if you decide if you want to live forever or if you don't. But the possibility is only theoretically there now. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the interesting part was so... Um, What I really, um, what really fascinates me about Aubrey, I mean, apart from his uh, research, whether we find good or not, whatever, that doesn't really matter in this discussion, but really this, having this kind of like 19th or even 18th century, or even 17th century model of uh, doing research, right? It's like, that's how science started, that there were some wealthy people um, having time at their hands mm -hmm. and interest and then just researching stuff. I mean, but it, it makes sense because he is doing it in, a, in an area that he's pioneering in. Well, there are many I, I areas that are being pioneered. I mean, it's not like the only one, you know? I mean, I don't know, just, just uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, just talking about stem cells was the very new and pioneering, you know, concept. So, I mean, he does some kind of like, I mean, from a talk today, I had the idea, I had the impression that he does a bit of like, idea archaeology somehow uh, because he does go back to like old papers old ideas from the 70s and 80s and looks what people tried back then and uh, and basically takes up the concepts and you know just does it with the technology we have today and he does look at different areas and try to bring in like maybe yeah this interdisciplinary approach And yeah, I mean, he's right. You can only do that um, if you have time, basically. I mean, no PhD in life sciences today. Like, let's say a PhD, um, well, let's take, for example, close to home. So any PhD student at the MDC, um, let's say you're doing research in um, cardiovascular diseases um, and very specific aspect of it. So if you go to a, uh, like a kind of heart conference, that's already like the, the largest of... Uh, the largest scope of interdisciplinarity you will ever go to because everything else you just don't have time with. 
I mean, all the to catch up with the research in your own field is already hard enough. Um, and then within the scope to at least include maybe just some, you know, neighboring areas is okay. But as soon as you start, like, let's say you're doing research, you're a bench scientist, wet, science, wet lab scientist, um, and then you need bioinformatics already, you know, you would not go and start doing bioinformatics yourself. You would team up with someone and there already the problem starts that you cannot even really talk with each other properly because you have different languages from different disciplines and so on. So, um, yeah, I think he was just having the the time, the opportunity to just, you know, just graze through different areas and like time, like had time to develop his ideas. And it's interesting because all the different scientists that I have experienced here at the MDC, you can definitely see that they're in fundamental research. I was trying to really understand how each little mechanism works with each other. Mm. And with him, I felt like you could totally see that he was an engineer. Like, so it's a different approach, but. Well, it's applied science. And I mean, just the comparison, like the human is uh, it's not a machine, but it's still a machine. Uh, it's like this so, so engineer's view on human body. And I don't know, I had so many conversations like that, but from a different angle with, uh, with actually like animal rights, um, well, not necessarily activists, but like defenders, um, that, well, we can take apart a computer and put it back together uh, so what's the problem? I mean, we can simulate everything, like a human body, you know, on computer, because we know all the parts, so we can just take it apart and, like, you know, in, in silico and put it back together. And just having this conversation, like, no, we don't know all the parts. <laughs> uh, and even if we take apart the human body, we, in many cases, we don't know how to put the molecules back together because we've never seen them. We don't know what they should be, what time and how and when and with whom and and so on. So it's like, I don't know, it's like tinkering the unknown. And I'm not going to say anything to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's actually quite obvious that after you have a conversation like this, that thoughts around the soul come up. <laughs> because even if you would take everything back, you know, after someone has died and is clinically dead, the body is still there with the molecules, right? Even if it's moments after and you take everything apart and put it back together, it's not going to give life. So there's that one little teeny aspect of life that does contribute <laughs> to the whole entire thing. Yeah, the flow of chemicals. But anyway, you're not so going the flow of chemicals. <laughs> you're not going there. Um, you know, back to this, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I found it interesting. Also, um, I, but I must say I totally disagree with him about this peer review. Uh, I, I always say that in the interview. Uh, I don't think that peer review is, like, the, his, his idea that peer review is just bad and should be replaced by sort of track record review. Um, I really don't like this idea. I mean, he's definitely right that... Uh, the current scientific system and the peer review uh, as we have it now, the way it's being done, maybe not the, the basic idea behind, but like the way it's being done, it's not really supporting actually innovation and, uh, you know, new lines of research. It's just supporting low-hanging fruits. I mean, that's, that's for sure. Um, it's just his take on how to fix it is actually, in my opinion, making the problem worse. Mm-hmm. Because then you just, I mean, seriously, you just give more money to people who already have money. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think if that's a really good idea. So, I mean, the essence, I, I found it really interesting to talk to him um, because I think 
scientific, I mean, we talk about how scientific system is maybe broken, not so broken, uh, could be fixed. Open science is the fix, uh, maybe not. But we talk about different different aspects of how a scientific system could be improved. And basically he is a person who's been doing research and driving a certain you know, research forward, in essence, outside of the scientific system, because he's also saying that the scientific system is broken. And, well, he mainly talked about how peer review is broken, but I suspect that was the the reason for, like, he wasn't, wasn't getting money for his research, so he... Um, made his own, basically. Um, so I found it really interesting to talk to him. Um, unfortunately, not all of us can can do the research this way, like cannot walk his path. We still have to uh, find a way how to make research, the scientific system, whole for everybody, right? He also mentioned, he also mentioned in his talk that um, within the few... I don't know, within the next two years or something that there are going to be clinical trials. And after that, it's just going to be a big, huge boom and people are going to invest in it and they're not going to need any any charity money anymore for the SENS Research Foundation to have to function because it's just going to be financed from the private sector. And that is not really what open science is about no, in any way because that's more like protective, keeping it. And you could also see in the talk that, you know, it wasn't – that he was saying, I did exactly this. This was exactly my method. This is, yeah, it was somehow he stated the facts, but it wasn't like, come and do the same exact thing. Yeah, he wouldn't let us to look into his cards, like his his deck of cards, like completely, right? His hand of cards. No, Let's say that was my impression. Yeah. Yeah. No, but that was mine as well. Which is okay. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But, uh, yeah. I, just, we started... Uh, um, the interview with him, I was thinking, actually, this is like citizen science, right? I mean, what he's doing is like, you know, a guy who's outside of the mainstream and has his idea and he finds a way to finance it and he does it, you know. And yeah, but that's not what citizen science is about. Not really. So, Let's say that the idea behind it is what citizen science is. If mm -hmm. I have a real problem, somebody else is not dealing with this real problem, so I'm going to go out and fix this problem by mm -hmm. myself. So let's say like the philosophical idea behind mm -hmm. what he's doing is total citizen science. Mm -hmm. It's just that there is a... It's more like citizen invention. Yeah. Rather that, yeah. Okay, that was it. Um, I think we stopped talking now. And um, We just hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. <laughs> was interesting. There's a lot still to think about, to be honest. Yeah. And I guess we'll continue thinking about it for a long time. Um, and yeah. we'll hear you next week. Yeah. That's it from us. Thank you very much for listening. As always, the music for the show uh, was produced by Fabio de Miguel. The audio editing uh, is done by Paulo de Oliveira. And this episode was brought to you by, by the Orion Open Science Project. And follow us on Twitter. Um, at OOSP underscore Orion pod or write us an email at Orion at MDC minus no dash Berlin dot de. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>